Good evening. It's good to see you. Uh, we're on. Don't know. It is on. Okay. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we'll begin reading at verse 43. Uh, unfortunately, the wonderful reading that uh, uh, our dear brother gave was the wrong text. <laughs> I already preached on that text. I've told everybody's going, okay, Kurt just finally lost his mind. Uh, my good, good friend and brother Kenny was saying that uh, when they passed by a, a memory care unit, is, he, he always asked his wife, do I live there? You know, uh, uh, I, I told him that uh, Teresa says, you will live there. <laughs> not yet, okay, not yet. Uh, actually, I sent Elizabeth the wrong text. My bad. Uh, not hers. Uh, so uh, anyway, we're going to look this evening at chapter 4 of John, verse 43, uh, down through verse 54. Verse 43 through 54. So notice, uh, first notice, let's, let's read the text together. Uh, this is just following uh, Jesus uh, uh, preaching in Sychar, and uh, not even going into Sychar, but the conversion of the Samaritans as they come out and believe in him. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The scripture says in verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And, the, and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right, uh, the, the important thing that I want us to uh, first off see here, just as far as introducing this, is that everyone today who call themselves Christians would tell you they had faith. That would be a, an obvious, wouldn't it? But as we have noticed oftentimes in the book of John, one of the key themes of John is John is differentiating between people who say they have faith and people who have faith that's acceptable to Jesus. And that's exactly the situation we've had here ever since back in chapter 2 and verse 23 and following where many believed in Jesus, but he did not entrust himself, same word, believe in them. And then Nicodemus becomes a beginning example of that who, who says, oh, you're, you're, a, you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus turns around and says, well, unless you're born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then we have this different picture with the Samaritans, as we noticed a couple of weeks ago. We have a picture of individuals who never even see Jesus before they believe in Him. They believe in Him based on even a word brought by a woman who goes into the city and says, could this not be the Messiah? And they even say later, we believed your, on basis of your word. Now we've gone out and heard him, and now we believe on the basis of what we're hearing from him. And the unique part of this is he never did a miracle in front of anybody at Sychar, and yet they believed based on the word. The critical, the critical message that keeps coming up in the book of John is that John is giving us signs, not just miracles. We've said that before. You, you know that. He's giving us signs. Signs have something that goes beyond the wow of the moment, the wow, this is, that was really neat, like Herod wanting to see Jesus because he wanted to see a sign. But he had no interest in believing. So there is an enamorment with the signs, I mean with the miracles, but not an enamorment with what does the sign mean? What's the critical message about Jesus that John wants to get across to us? I would suggest to you even that those who simply see the sign are the ones who are the partial believers. The ones who, simply, I should have said that wrong, the ones who simply see the miracle are the ones who are the partial believers. The one who see the sign and are able to see the message behind the sign are the ones who become the true believers and those who are acceptable by the Lord. So we're setting that up there in a contrast that John is giving here. And, and as we begin, I, my, 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 what I want you to understand real carefully is, is that we need to be aware that John's movements and messages and accounts have connections here. We're not just Nicodemus, Sychar, now the nobleman's son uh, who is from Capernaum. We're, we're not just looking at it that way. There is a connection and a theme that comes through each of these points. They're not independent events here. So let's notice and make these connections here. First, look at verse 43. Verse 43, after two days he departed from Galilee. He's been in Sychar. You'll remember back in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, the scripture said he was headed to Galilee and he said he must needs, as the old versions say, he must needs go through Samaria or he needed to pass through Samaria. He had an appointment with a woman who he didn't know that he had an appointment with her. He had an appointment to meet up with that woman. And he goes through Sychar, spends two days in order to do that, and then continues his journey on to Galilee. Notice verse 44, and you see an interesting connection. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Tell me that isn't just a weird plug. <laughs> it's just... We're going through here. He leaves uh, Samaria, Sychar. He leaves the area and he goes up to Galilee. And John just throws in this parenthetical. Uh, by the way, Jesus even testified that a prophet isn't uh, accepted in his own hometown. And that's where he's going. So John is giving us alert here. He's alerting us to the fact that he is moving from an area in which they accepted him based on his word to an area he has already done a sign and they've rejected him. He's going to come back and he's going to do another sign and they're going to reject him again. 
There's a contrast that's going on between them. And that is an important picture that you want to see here. Secondly, as I've mentioned before, there's no sign in Samaria that's done. There's already been a sign done in his hometown. So again, you've seen the contrast that's given there. Then you notice in verse 54, he ends the section by saying this, now, this, was, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Samaria uh, or Judea to Galilee. Again, no sign in Samaria, <laughs> two signs now in Galilee, and John testifies about him that this Galilean area where his hometown is and home land is, this is an area that will not accept him. They already are pointing that out there. So we're seeing these connections. So that stands out first and foremost so that you will be able to understand. This is not just John going, let me throw another uh, miracle in at you. This is not John going, well, let's just multiply some miracles here just to impress you. There is a message that's going on here that John wants us to see. And the little statements that John makes are not disconnected from the message he wants us to see. And that's really important to notice. It, it, it is just like we're going to go uh, from here and he's, John's going to mention a feast. And then in chapter 6, he's going to mention the Passover at hand. In chapter 7, he's going to mention tabernacles at hand. And every time he says something like that, you do not want to look at it as just, oh, historical statement. John has a purpose. And you always want to connect the purpose. So in this particular case, the real operative verse is verse 44. A prophet, Jesus testified, a prophet has a... Where's my water? Got it. A prophet is without honor, not without honor in his own hometown. <clears throat> All right. Now, let's, let's go on from there and let's see the contrast in faith here. There's a contrast that you're going to see that goes on with the faith that uh, you're going to see between Sychar, Samaria, and these individuals. <clears throat> and we've already noticed the contrast between 44 and 45. But look at 45. A prophet was without honor in his own hometown, and then the Galileans welcomed him in verse 45. You notice that? That sound contradictory? That sounds weird, doesn't it? Uh, John goes, uh, he's not going to be accepted in his own hometown. So just want you to be alert to that. So want you to be aware of that. And then the very next verse, John writes, and he came to Galilee, and the Galileans welcomed him because they'd seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And, and you're going, what, what are you talking about, John? Well, what I'm talking about, John is saying, is, is this. Even though that may seem odd, they welcomed him, but the reason they welcomed him is what they had seen him do at the feast. This should remind you, if you turn back to chapter 2, Remember back there, if you turn back to chapter 2, verse 23, this is an echo that we have already noticed. 2.23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he saw the signs they were doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Mentioned at the beginning, entrust and believe, exactly the same word in the Greek, he didn't believe in them. He didn't trust them. And that is exactly what we'll keep seeing here 
throughout the text in John. So this then is echoed here in this place as well. They believe, but they believe based on signs, and the signs never are enough. He gets no honor from them. He's not honoring them. They are just amazed at the signs. That's going to be emphasized even more now. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, this is when uh, the, the uh, uh, man from uh, the nobleman or official from uh, Capernaum comes to him. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You notice I put on the screen, the word you here in the text is plural. So Jesus is not just talking to the man. When the man comes and says this, he uses the opportunity to speak to everybody there. Unless all of you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now there's that indictment and confirms what we're saying when we look at verses 44 and 45. He has no honor here. They welcomed him, but they continue just to see signs. The motivation is wrong. And this is going to be a tremendous and important lesson for us as well. Unless you see these signs, you will not believe. And so what that brings, and we stop right here and just point out, here's a big lesson, a big critical question then for us. Why do you believe? You know, I know, I know, everybody goes, uh, well, what kind of crazy question is that? Why would I believe? Well, because, you know, he's Jesus. He's son of God. He's all of this. No, what's your motivation? What's your motivation? These people believed. He's already said, he talked about them as believers. They're from Jerusalem and, and, and those individuals. Why do you believe? There's all kinds of reasons that could come out. Maybe you believe because your peer group believes. And you know that if you didn't fall into place with that, if you didn't believe like they believed, if you didn't follow along with that, that you would not have the same friends that you have. And that would be uncomfortable for you. And so it's easy to do that. I've got a lot of peer group. I've got a lot of people that, I, that believe as well as I do. So I want to, I want to believe as well. Maybe you believe because Jesus is popular. Popular again in the group or yard. It's easy to do that in the South. Lots of people believe. It's the simplest thing in the world to talk to a next door neighbor about Christ. They believe. My neighbors all believe. None of them want to do a blooming thing about it, but they all believe. <laughs> Keep trying. I think I'm going to get a class here soon, hopefully. But it's just like, yeah, we all believe. We all have faith. Yeah, it's great. We're all going to heaven. Maybe you believe because it's good to have somebody to fall back on when you're lonely, you're in need, and you just need somebody. You know, Christ is my little insurance policy in my back pocket that when I get low, you know, I can always turn to him. I can pick out a psalm. I can read a verse on a coffee cup or something like this and put it on my refrigerator and it gives me hope. Is that why we believe? There's all kinds of reasons. Unfortunately, many just believe because I don't want to be lost. I, I, don't, I don't want to go to hell. So I, I, I believe that that's, that's a good fire insurance. There's a lot of motivations to believe other than 
the motivation Jesus is looking for in this text. And, and, and I'd like to call your attention. We've ta- we talked about this a few times. This is part of what we talked about this morning. But let's get this in our minds because it's very, very important. Look at, what, look at how the psalmist talk about their desire for God. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Now, where do you put your delight? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. <laughs> what are your desires in this case? Now, I'm talking about physical desires. He's talking about the spiritual desires you have for him. Delight yourself in, now how would I might fill in that blank if I didn't write, if the psalmist didn't write, in the Lord? How would that blank be filled in in my life? Delight yourself in, and you would have your own answer. But there's only one way we can say, I delight in the Lord. And that is because we have worked to get to know him. We have, we have put our heart and soul into wanting to be connected to him in every way. And that doesn't happen at a distance, and it doesn't happen in a week or a month. It happens over a lifetime of pushing ourselves to know more about him. I want to know more. The moment you and I level out, I see this lots of times. Well, I got the doctrines down, Pat. Well, I got the, you know, the, I got the main teachings. I know what's right and wrong. You can't level there. That's not what he's talking about. Delight yourself in the Lord. He's the one we're seeking. The common passage, we sing a song on it. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My thirst, my soul thirst for God, for the living God. My soul thirst for God. Are you thirsty for God? Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 55 and emphasizes the idea of there's those, everybody hungers and thirsts. The question is, where are you going to quench your thirst? Will God quench your thirst? Is he, do you understand he's the only one that can quench your thirst? Are you going to buy water and drink and food that will not solve your hunger and thirst problem? He is the only one that can do that. Again, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink the river of your delights. Again, the hunger for the abundance in God's house and the abundance of delights that God has. And then one more. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Both Peter and the Hebrew writer talks about tasting God, tasting the joys of God, the delights of God. In his presence our joy is joy forevermore, Psalm 16, 10. That's a concept that is difficult to absorb if you grew up like I did 
and you grew up being the t almost 100% emphasis is, do you understand what right and wrong worship is, what right and wrong service is, what's right and wrong church is, what right and wrong baptism is, what right and wrong, and I'm not depreciating any of that, but if that's the way you grew up and measured faithfulness, this is who John's talking to. This is the way the Galileans were. This is the way the people of Judea were. The pride was in, I've got this right, I've got this right, and I've got this right. But there was no boasting in God and desire for God. And we will see Jesus open that, that store up quite clearly when we get into chapter 5 of warning them about their condition just that way. It's a critical point and a critical measurement within the text. Now, let's go from there and let's understand a little bit more about the details so we can appreciate that thought a bit more. So look here at this official's son. Cana was 15 miles from Capernaum. Uh, and the man, when he hears that Jesus is in Cana, he travels that 15 miles. That's a, that's a pretty good walk. I don't know when's the last time you tried that one, but that's a, that's a pretty good walk. And uh, let's see, Teresa and I do about 3.4 miles in an hour, so five or six hours <laughs> of walk, something like that. So 15 miles away, he goes there and he asks Jesus, come down and uh, heal my son. He's at the point of death. Jesus does this interesting thing. Jesus turns around and uh, he is emphasizing this. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, um, actually, go, your son will live. After he talks about, unless people see signs and wonders, he basically gives the man the cold shoulder. He doesn't really answer his question. <clears throat> and he says, well, uh, you guys just keep wanting to see signs. He says, look, my son is about to die. Come before he dies. He's desperate. And Jesus just says, just go. <coughs> just go. Your, your, son, your son's going to live. Okay, here's the question. Is he going to go or is he going to say, no, you've got to come? You have to be there. Jesus put him on the spot. He's either going to say, fantastic, or he's going to say, you've got to come with me. You need to come. That's what he's asked him to do. But instead, go, your son will believe. Notice the man. The man, verse 50, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Does that sound familiar? Go back in chapter 4. Earlier, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two, there two days. And many more believed because of his word. See the familiarity? He's challenging, do you believe because I said so? Because of who I am. Not because you have to continue to see these miracles over and over again in order to be accepted. Now contrast <clears throat> between Jesus' rebuke 
and the man's faith here. Jesus has rebuked the crowds. He's rebuked the crowds for not believing and having to continue to see the signs and wonders. He is looking for a progression of faith. Here's the problem. They like to see the signs and wonders. They're amazed at at all of this, but they never see the message and they never progress in their faith. But in this case, he believes because of Jesus' word. That's where it has to get for us. So again, second now message that we need to understand. You think that's simple to do. It's simple just to accept Jesus at his word. There's a lot of things that Jesus says that's hard to accept at his word. Um, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, you lost your job. There's no place to find any money. You don't know what you're going to do. You're in a total panic. Chip and I were talking yesterday about uh, having uh, a boss walk in and uh, uh, just, uh, just, just say, uh, by the way, uh, we need to meet with you, and human resources is going to be here too. <coughs> you're like, what? What's it about? Not telling you. Oh, goodness. Uh, there, there's is like this this immediate panic, and usually there's not an immediate. Jesus said, "If I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He's going to take care of food, clothing, and drink. He's going to be there to accept His word." When your marriage goes to a point where you just don't think you can take it anymore. Mine hasn't got there, (laughs) just so you know. When you're married, just a point where you just don't, this is impossible. It's never going to get better. This is absolutely beyond anything a person ought to have to deal with. Are you going to take him at his word when he said, let not man separate. Are you going to take him at his word? You see, it's not so easy when we look at it from the standpoint of we feel like we need relief. And the best and most most usual time we fall into sin is when our body is saying and our mind is saying, I need relief. Job, When did Job fail? He failed when he began to believe he had to have relief. And he's not getting it. And he begins to demand that God do something about it. That sin of demanding will get us in trouble every time. And then the sin that follows that is rationalizing my desire not to trust his word. And this is exactly what has to happen here. Faith has to go beyond just believing on the basis of what Jesus has done or can do. Faith truly is taking Jesus at his word. All right, let's 
see the sign now. We've looked at all of that. There's a sign. There's a message here that is being given. John has pointed out to us there has already been one sign, and now he says there's a second sign. What was the first sign? The first sign was turning the water to wine, right? And what was the sign teaching? What was the message? Do you remember? The message is the blessings of the kingdom are, are now happening. There is an overflow. There's 180 gallons of wine that has been made out of water. And there is a picture of the overflowing blessings of God's kingdom. What now is the second sign giving? Notice here the words. Come down before my child dies. That little statement may just seem, oh well, yeah, that's really sad. This man's son is going to die, and that, that is sad. But what is being said here is everything that every child, adult, person that ever takes a breath has to face. We're dead already without Jesus. There was a curse that was given in the garden. And the curse was, you will die. And there's only one way you won't die. And that is the God's promise to Abraham. Through your offspring, all nations will be we say it this way, curse reversed, blessed. A blessing reverses the curse. And the hardest thing for you and I to do is wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I'm alive. You're not alive unless you have Jesus. And unless you are serving him, unless you delight in him, unless you desire him, you haven't to have life. Life only comes that way. The man looks at Jesus and says, you've got to come before my child dies. He recognizes there isn't any way that he is going to live otherwise. That's the curse. As we look in the mirror and watch ourselves age, I always think of God saying to Adam in the marginal reading, it'll oftentimes point out in the day you eat of the fruit, Dying you shall die. And you a lot of times have heard me say, it isn't the die part that is, that is most disconcerting. It's the dying part. It's, it's the lingering part. It's the part where there's suffering and there's difficulty and there's hardship. It's that part that we deal with, but it is a message. You are dying. And the physical picture of dying is only a physical picture of a spiritual death that's happening without Jesus. He's the only source. He's the only one. There isn't any other way. You, you can hear people talk all different ways and way you're going to get to heaven, but Jesus is the only way. Notice the words, by the way. The word live is used three times in the text. Jesus says to him, your son will live, verse 50. Again, verse 51, New King James, your son lives. Again, in verse 
50, uh, 53. And uh, he says, the father knew there was the hour. Jesus said to him, your son will live. The emphasis in the text three times, your son is going to live. My son is about to die. You have to come. He's under the curse of death. You have to come. Jesus, your son will live. Your son lives. It was that hour in which Jesus said, your son will live. This is the giving then of life. Now, final message. The blessing of Abraham is the life that is in the son. Think about what Abraham went through. Here's the fulfillment of this blessing. Remember when God said to Abraham, 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 and Abraham said, here I am. He said, I want you to get up in the morning and I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to travel three days to the mountain I will show you and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on that mountain. And Abraham rose early in the morning, early in the morning, and got up and prepared the donkey and got the wood and told his son and got a couple of servants and said, We're going to make a sacrifice, and it's three days away, and here we go. He believed no matter the cost. And when Abraham lifted his knife to kill his son, of course the angel stopped him, but the Hebrew letter says that he received him back as one raised from the dead. A lot of you talked about, I talked about this morning as we were having uh, in the lesson, the song we sang about Jesus' dead body suddenly breathing. Suddenly breathing. Quiver of his body, the life that was given, and suddenly he takes a breath. And the victory over Satan was had at that moment. He conquered him. He conquered him completely and totally. Real disciples, true disciples that are talked about in the book of John, trust and believe in him no matter the cost. So often when I think of a difficult decision, I think about what it's going to take and how hard it's going to be to trust his word on this. I think of Abraham and God saying, kill your son. Pick up the knife and kill your son. Abraham's taking a guess. Well, he'll probably raise him back. Even if you knew that God, if God said, kill your son, I'm going to raise him back, don't worry about it. How easy would that be? (laughs) I don't know. Pick up the knife. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul says that those who follow Jesus will follow the pattern of the works that were done by Abraham. That's belief. 
I'm, I'm afraid. Maybe I'm not there. But every day of your life and every day of my life, God has ramped up that little obedience thing just a little higher. He's put you through something a little more difficult and ramped up that idea. Are you progressing in your faith from, I'm impressed with what he does to being impressed with who he is? That's the question. Are you just impressed with what he does? Are you impressed with who he is? And you're coming to him because of who he is. True belief. True belief. Some believed. Some are amazed. Some think it's great. Others believe just on the basis of his word. That's where we are. That's what we have to believe. If you're not a Christian, I want you to think about your condition. Where is your faith? How is your faith progressing? Is it a faith just because Jesus did some great things? Or is it a faith because you really desire him? You delight in him. Your envision of being in heaven in eternity is being with him. There is no heaven if Jesus isn't there. There is no heaven if you're not in his presence. There is no heaven if you're not tasting the delights of who he is and what it is like to be there in his presence. That's what we need to strive for. We can help you. Please do so whilst together we stand and while we sing.